Hello, and welcome to Cannabis Nation, where we help guide you through the wonderful and complex world of cannabis by shedding light on your most burning questions and dankest desires. Mm-hmm. We are your hosts. I'm Nick. And I'm Susan. And this is episode 35, Yay! entitled, Nobody Knows Anything. Not a damn thing. So last year, the Medical Marijuana and Cannabidiol Research Expansion Act was passed, which we talked about in our State of the Union episode. Yeah. So we thought we'd give you a small update on research that has come out since that. Since, yeah. So just a couple things that, you know, nothing earth shattering, just, you know, life changing stuff. And very fun stuff. Very fun stuff. So the first thing that we have for you is... We have known for quite some time now that cannabis can give you the munchies. I don't know if you remember one of our previous episodes that we talked about uh, myths and then facts of cannabis. And turns out, yes, it does give you the munchies. Okay, but not just the munchies for any old nosh. It turns out it makes us crave the tastiest, most high-calorie foods. Huh. Well, a study in the Journal of Current Biology on April 20th of this year shows that well-studied nematodes their worms react to the chemicals known as cannabinoids in the precisely the same way what wow yeah in the study the researchers first showed that worms react to the endocannabinoid amandamite remember we talked about that by eating more and they also ate more of their favorite foods, just like we do. And the researchers found that these effects of the endocannabinoids depend on the presence of the worms cannabinoid receptors hello their endocannabinoid system yes they have one too yeah crazy freaking nematodes have an endocannabinoid system that's wild okay so now there's a sean lockery from the university of oregon in eugene that explains that the new study was inspired in 2015 when cannabis became legal in oregon okay Now, at the University of Oregon, at the time, our laboratory at the University of Oregon was deeply involved in assessing nematode food preferences as part of our research on the neuronal basis of economic decision making. So what does that mean? Um, but, you know, it's it's studying the the impact that our brains and our neurons yep. have yep. on the decisions that we make yep. when it comes to our appetite and That's what right. we choose to eat and when we choose to and eat. And when we choose to eat it. Right. He said in almost literally a Friday afternoon experiment, we decided to see if soaking worms in cannabinoids alters existing food preferences. Okay, that's just your Friday <laughs> afternoon in the laboratory, people. Yeah, what if, we, uh, <laughs> what if we get these worms high? <laughs> we soak them. Yeah. Okay, and, it, and then he goes on to say, turns out it does. And the paper is the result of many years of follow-up research. Now, he goes on to say that cannabinoids make nematoids hungrier for their favorite foods and less hungry for their non-favorite foods. Thus, the effects of cannabinoids in the nematoids parallels the effects of marijuana on human appetites. Imagine that. Are you freaking kidding me? Okay. Then, goes on further to say, nematodes diverge from the lineage, from the lineage leading to mammals more than 50 fucking million years ago. Correction, 500 million years ago. I'm sorry, 500 million years ago. Oh, shit. All right. Whoops, my bad. It is truly remarkable that the effects of cannabinoids on appetite are preserved through this length of evolutionary time. And do you hear that clock? That's yep. the clack, 
cat clock cat clocks ticking. going off letting you know <laughs> okay that's wild that is absolutely insane to think that the endocannabinoid system has been around so long throughout so evolution long. i mean it, yes. how long ago it was actually developed as a system in 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 bio- biologics at all in biology it's wild wild and we're just finding this out. Now, remember the sea urchin uh, reproduction study we talked about in our endocannabinoid show where scientists analyzed the chemical soup released in the water during mm-hmm. the reproduction process of the sea urchin? Well, okay, so this just blew my fucking mind, you guys. Excuse me, I've said the F word twice now on the show. But it begs the questions, like how, like Nick was saying, how old are cannabinoids? And even further, how have they shaped the evolution on this planet? Yeah. Okay? That just boggles my mind. It's like I said, the more we know, the more we know nothing. Yeah. No, it's absolutely insane. That is, a, uh, you know, who would have had any idea? Like, we know that other mammals have a similar yeah. endocannabinoid system yeah. to us, but that kind of makes sense, sense. Sure. Um, evolutionarily. But the fact that nematodes and sea urchins um, and all these creatures who... Yeah. Uh, they're they're like he said the diversion of their evolution to ours is hundreds of millions 50 of million years correction 500 oh million years why do i keep saying 50 <laughs> it's 500 yeah. my brain can't even flip and wrap itself yeah. around that hundreds of millions of hundreds years ago of if not longer you know Jeez. it is wild yeah. um we also have a new study from king's college yeah. in london in this one, studying the link between THC and CBD. Yeah. Uh, in it, a long-held myth has been dispelled. Uh, dun, dun, dun. So long has the idea been propagated that if you get quote-unquote too high, yeah. taking CBD will reverse the negative effects of THC. See, I always knew this is bullshit. Yep. And this for me. <laughs> study proved it wrong. Yeah. So in this study, 46 healthy volunteers completed a randomized double-blind trial. Yeah. Over the course of four experiments, each participant inhaled cannabis vapor containing 10 milligrams of THC and differing levels of CBD being 0 milligrams, Mm. 10 milligrams, 20, and 30. Um, They then completed a series of tasks, questionnaires, and interviews designed to measure the effect on their cognitive abilities, um, severity of psychotic symptoms, and how pleasurable the drug was. So they did it. Yeah. did it all around. And I know what you're thinking immediately. It's like, I have 10 milligrams is not that much for an average smoker. But these are just random people. Right. A lot for a, somebody who doesn't smoke weed at all coming into this, 10 milligrams is a pretty good dose. It yeah. might be too much. And it, for some, it's too much. Right. So so this is a, this is a pretty um, solid study, especially when it comes to that's the standard well, dose for edibles in a lot of And areas. they also did 20 and 30 milligrams uh, CBD. respectively. For CBD, CBD, not yeah. THC. Oh, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. But uh, Dr. Amir England, uh, a research fellow at King's LOPPN, mm-hmm. um, which is their psychiatric uh, uh, study uh, college, yeah. um, uh, and the study's lead author said, none of the CBD levels studied protected our volunteers from the acute negative effects of cannabis, such as anxiety, psychotic symptoms, and worse cognitive yeah. performance. Yeah. It also did not change the quality of the intoxication in any way. Mm -hmm. The only effect of CBD we saw was as the concentration of CBD increased, the more participants coughed. Really? Yeah. 
We asked the volunteers to listen to a favorite song on each visit and taste a piece of chocolate. Sounds like my kind of experience. Yep. Although cannabis increased the pleasurability of music and chocolate compared to when volunteers were sober, CBD had no impact. So, you know, saying that um, it it caused more coughing, that's simply because it's more cannabinoids. You're inhaling more hot Mm. oils, you know. More chemicals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Chemical compounds, part In your lungs, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not to say that necessarily CBD is harsher than THC. It's just that as you go up and up in cannabinoids, it's going to be slightly harsher because you are inhaling hot oils. Oh. Um, okay. uh, wow, taking CBD during or after THC has no notable effect. This same research team had found in a previous study that taking a high seed dose of CBD a few hours before taking THC can have a significant effect on the negative aspects of the high. Huh. Yes. So basically, you know, CBD is a regular, is a system regulator. Yes. Um, so monitor. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole room monitor. So it can definitely, um, affect how cannabinoids are absorbed, Sure. but it needs to be already in the, in the system, system before you take any THC for it to be able to do its job. Exactly. You can't block THC with inter- from interacting with the receptors if the THC beats it there. Right. Or you it know? happens at the same time. Exactly. THC ha- has a higher affinity uh, to binding with these receptors, so they're always going to bind quicker, quicker than CBD. Right. But if you have no THC in your system and you take your CBD, they're going to bind first right. and keep a, a, a portion of the THC from interacting with Again, the because it already, it's the hall room monitor. It says, no, no, we have enough mm-hmm. of that or we don't need any of that kind of a thing. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, so that leads us into the main topic of this episode is that the more we learn and discover about cannabis, the more we realize that nobody knows anything. Yeah. You know, to an extent. The man who discovered the endocannabinoid system passed away at the ripe age of 92. Yes, not just recently. Not mm-hmm. too long ago too. It was only 31 years ago that we found the basis of, for how cannabinoids interact with our brain and body. And there's still so, so much to figure out. much to figure out. Especially when we're finding out the cannabis, you know, the endocannabinoid system is at least 500 million years old. 500, you will hear me say that many yeah. times. Yeah. Okay. So we decided today to talk about things taken as truth in the cannabis world that are either untrue or simply just not fully known. Right. Um, so here's some of the things that we really don't know. Yeah. Like, okay, this whole, this whole sativa hybrid indica thing that Nick and I have talked about before. Mm-hmm. And I know that we've kind of gone down wormholes and <laughs> wormholes with uh, this, right? Nematode holes. Nematode holes. But, okay, why do we call a strain sativa hybrid or indica? Well, to the consumer, it is for the effect you get from smoking, but there are a variety of reasons to label a strain one way or another in a dispensary, which Mm -hmm. makes it an unreliable way to judge strains. Unfortunately. I know. Now, commonly, the industry uses the genetic family tree of strain to judge whether it's a sativa, hybrid, or indica, meaning we always, okay, uh, a kush. From the, you know, the mm-hmm. Kush Mountains. That was going to be heavy indica because of the chemical compounds that exist for that plant to grow and thrive in that region. Climate, water availability, and pests. Yeah, or like in its genetic uh, history, um, there, you know, you go down the tree, there are 30 indicas and 10 sativas, so we're going to call it a 75% indica strain. Yeah, right. 
Now, okay, so maybe 30 years ago, these things might have meant something like sativa or mm-hmm. indica, right? But imagine, if you will, you own a winery and you crossbreed a Chardonnay grape with a Cabernet grape and call it Kiss My Rosé. Okay, well, that is exactly what's going on in the cannabis industry. You would never do that, like like I said, in the wine industry. In mm-hmm. spirits, you know, like, are you going to mix juniper berries and, and like, sugar cane or juniper berries? And, like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. when you're going to make scotch, for God's sake, yeah. you know, with peat? You would never do that. But in the cannabis industry, that's exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. And so... What we have going on and it is there's the land race strains are dying. They're a dying breed, literally, because as we move forward, we're going to be we're going to be producing things for different reasons for, you know, for sale. OK, yeah. So what is meant by a land race, land race, excuse me, land race strains? It's strains of cannabis that have an innate characteristics based on their land of origin. All mm-hmm. right. For examples, indica, like we were talking about, indicas are typically shorter and stockier and have more sedative effects because of the cooler, higher elevations, climate predators in which they originally came from. Like we just said, mm-hmm. those factors have made the plant produce those sed- sedative traits over time. Conversely, sativa strains are typically taller, narrow profile and produce more of an energizing effect due to the conditions and predators native to the regions that they naturally grow in. Hybrids are made by crossbreeding sativas and indicas that can have effects anywhere along the spectrum, but effects are usually described as in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, which also is kind of a kind of a not accurate too, because sometimes you know you're produ- you're crossbreeding sativas with sativas or indicas with indicas, and you could call that a hybrid too. So mm-hmm. that's why we're saying these things no longer have any relevance, really. Yeah. Okay. We have taken cannabis out of the sunlight and placed her in grow houses, apartments, and basements, okay? And greenhouses. Each strain is now so overbred for this or that by they or them that a land race strain is an endangered species in the dispensary. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to clarify that, yes, land race strains will always exist. Those are the plants that grow in the wild in these mm-hmm. places that we pluck them from. Correct. But the amount of them that you're going to be seeing on the shelves right. over time is going to become less and less. And it already is near zero. Right. You know, um, even if a company is calling a strain land race, you know, where did they get that seed from? Where did they get that plant from? Did they truly, was it truly taken from its natural environment or not? You right. know, um, those are things that, that we truly have no way of actually knowing. We That's don't have um, the systems in place for yet. For certification. For certification of strain genetics and all yeah. these kinds of things. Yeah. Because we simply don't know what's important in the genetics yet. We still, we still are, are learning that. So in the early days of cannabis breeding, like we were talking about earlier, crossing two land race sativas would have a very high likelihood of producing a strain with sativa characteristics and effects. But as most of the strains that make it to the dispensary shelves have a hundred or more (laughs) ancestors in their family tree, it's simply impossible to judge the effects by the genetic history like Uh we were talking about earlier. 
Each seed produced when breeding two cannabis plants can have any combinations of gen- genetics from the parents. Mm-hmm. These are what we call phenotypes. So if you see a strain with a number at the end yeah. of it, that's generally a specific phenotype of of that strain that they hand selected. And just to make it just a little bit easier for you to understand, like Chanel number no. five, like the perfume we call Chanel number no. five was the the fifth one that she smelled of all these different varieties. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's Chanel number no. three, that that same exactly. Kind of you number thing. the seeds, you smoke them, and you say which number you like best, and yep. that's what we call it. Um, so not only can we not trust the genetic history, but the quote-unquote same strain from two different growers yeah. might be different phenotypes Correct. and have very different effects. Yes. No longer can we say a haze or anything lemon are sativas, nor right. can we say anything kush or afghan or all indicas. Yes. Everything now is, for the most part, a hybrid from the standpoint of genetic history. Yes. So we can't really use that as a judge anymore. No, no, no. No, no, no. Now, other growers will go back to the descriptions of cannabis sativa and cannabis indica that Susan gave you earlier and judge what a strain is simply based on how it looks when it grows. Right. Now, while this is accurate to the taxonomy Mm -hmm. with the aforementioned crossbreeding, it tells you nothing about how the strain will actually affect you as a consumer. Correct. So while this plant looks like the description of a cannabis sativa, because it has such a genetic variety uh, in its history now, you don't know if that, even if it looks like a sativa, is it going to hit like a sativa? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So all of you who, and I know there's lots of you that come into the shop who have been growing for a long, long Mm -hmm. time, and you look at something and you go, "This this doesn't look like an indica or this doesn't look like a sativa, I understand that. Yeah. And, and and you you're right. It doesn't look that way, but it's not going to be that way anymore. Yeah. No longer is there a link between the growth structure of the plant right. and the cannabinoids and terpenes it produces. Right. There's simply too much genetic diversity For, yes. within a single plant's genome to be able to know that. Yes. I'm now, sorry to say. No, I know. Yeah. it's It sucks. Um, more recently, some producers are trying to use terpene profiles yeah. to judge the effects of strain in categorizing sativa, hybrid, and indica based on that. Yeah, and I like that mm-hmm. when the producer tells us. Yeah, yeah. at least like having the, the uh, terpene breakdown on a strain is yeah. very helpful. Very helpful. Um, and while there is mounting support for the theory that terpenes determine what kind of high will be produced, there still needs to be more research into exactly how that works. That's right. Now, most of the research that we have on the effects of terpenes on the brain and body are from studies on essential oil, uh, which uh, isolate these terpenes and don't take into account the effects of terpenes and cannabinoids as a group when consumed together. Right. And I think uh, if everybody can remember... We talked about that before, and those are called now chemnovars. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and that's uh, judging the plant based on its specific combinations and mm-hmm. uh, and the amounts of each terpene and cannabinoid in it. And some people are saying, yeah, that's another thing. Sativa, hybrid, and indica wouldn't work for that. We need at least six, maybe ten, maybe twelve yeah. different chemovars to judge something. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a significant possibility that terpenes aren't the only thing other than cannabinoids that drive the experience. Yes. Many growers claim that a plant harvested early will have more sativa effects and a plant harvested late will feel more indica. And that could be because of the development of the cannabinoids and terpenes or it could be a 
uh, extraneous element that we don't quite under even know about yet. Which is probably most likely. Yeah, we don't know. It's yeah. it's it's simply too hard to tell at this point mm-hmm. because it is such. There are so many um, active ingredients in the cannabis plant. Yes. Um, the and and modern pharmacology and studying is based on the single active ingredient which cannabis just doesn't fit in no yeah. and and some people would say well the more uh, terpene when those uh terpenes are are manifesting themselves mm-hmm. and and that more cbn will be produced the longer you wait is that true who knows yeah. we don't really know we yeah. can't say that for certainly for certainty 100 mm-hmm. percent yeah and yeah. I feel like we need to have more studies for sure. Yeah, and widespread ones. You know, yes. it, it's it's one thing if a grower notices something with the strains that they grow, right. um, and how they're testing to b- based on these things. However, you know, there are so many elements that affect those things as well. Is it because the nutrients they're using? Is Dang. it because of simply the water or the grow medium or the lights Sing that it, they're Nick. using? You know, Sing it. We need wide scale studies that take into account all the variables which would be massive, and I hope we see more of those soon. Right. Now, the, this one is frustrating because it's, you know, it's maliciously misleading almost, um, but some companies will call a strain or, or a sativa or indica simply based on what's hot and selling at the time mm-hmm. or to fill out their product line. Yeah. It's, it's an unfortunate truth of the modern market, but will while a lot of these growers do recognize Almost all the strains are hybrids, you know, yes. uh, they, but customers want a sativa yeah. or they want an indica um, because that's what they're trained to want. That's they decide, right. I want the heady brainy effects. I want the sleepy body effects. That's the kind of person I am. Why don't these guys make a sativa or yeah. indica? So they'll go, well, actually, yeah, uh, this one that we're already growing right. is a sativa. There you go. Yeah. And How I bad? and I do want to share an experience that I had with you, uh, with you all just recently where um, there was uh, some mislabeling uh, in the shop. So, you know, and so when we went the down... The strain was labeled strabled, as wrong. I thought the strain was labeled wrong. So I went to go look it up to make sure that I wasn't wrong mm-hmm. because that happens. Yeah. And sure enough, when I looked up the strain, you know, in different various places, that it, it, it presented itself as indica dominant. Mm-hmm. And this producer was telling, um, telling saying sativa. So, all right. So I wanted, I didn't, I, I thought I asked the people, enough people, the right questions, but I decided to get straight to the horse's mouth. So I called up the farm and I was talking to uh, somebody in the know at the farm and said, quote, that strain is whatever you want it to be. And yeah. I was like, well, okay, that doesn't really work when you're standing in front of a customer. You can't yeah. just say it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. So just so you know, that was from a horse's mouth. Yeah. So, I, again, we went with what that producer said after I went down the rabbit for hole even further and got a hold of the head grower. Turns out that this particular strain from that particular farm produce uh, presents itself more as a sativa in their eyes and so ergo that's what we labeled it as so just so you know when you see something labeled in a shop and you go that's not right it's always like this know that their producers themselves Mm -hmm. have typically informed the shop 
what it is or the shop like i did goes goes and does the homework themselves yeah. to give you the most correct information so again we know nothing yeah yeah no i mean i've had i've had indica green cracks in the shop i've yeah. had sativa cushions and you know at this at the uh, same time you know there with what you went through there were you know five different ways that that could be classified the grower classified it based on how it grew the what you looked up probably classified it based on genetic history True. you know and yeah. and uh, there are so many different things and and i don't think it should be understated that the power of suggestion is huh. really strong yes. you know in some cases yes. i don't like that answer that he gave you that it's whatever you want it to be <laughs> but in some cases that can be, be the truth yes. that that the power of suggestion if somebody tells you the strain you're about to smoke is a super heady sativa or a heavy indica your brain might interact with the chemicals in a different way and and yeah. uh in the expectation of that effect <laughs> so it's kind of all up in the air yeah but yeah okay so but you know i just wanted to say that uh lastly there are producers that will do a good old-fashioned smoke test just smoke it and see how you feel mm -hmm. you know and tried and true yeah and while this is probably uh trying to discern what you know like nick is saying what is the customer looking for you know you got to remember everybody's brain chemistry is different so mm -hmm. no matter what we call it you can't say that i'm going to have the same experience that you're going to have 100 even with the same strain from the same producer totally okay now <laughs> That, that's why I think a lot of us always say, you know, when we're asking you the question, what strains do you like? What producers do you like? Mm -hmm. And please do the homework to try to figure those things out for yourself so we can help better lead you yeah. to what it is. Okay? What do you want to feel like and what has made you feel like that before? Yes. You know, um, that the those are two big questions because what do you want to feel like? We'll tell you what sort of, of course, what sort of high you're looking for. But it's asking what has made you feel like that before will give us a judge of like, okay, well, if a, you know, there are some people out there who uh, believe that they are reversed where sativas yep. put them to yep. sleep and indicas wake them right up. And I believe that. So if you tell me that like a Bubba Kush is your perfect heady creative strain, yeah. then I know that I'm not going to recommend you what would typically be a heady creative strain to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend you something closer to a bubble kush yeah. because that's your brain chemistry and that's how that works. And that's what you're communicating to me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that is so important you guys to understand that these relationships and these questions that we are asking you mm -hmm. are to help you have the best experience that you can have. Yeah. And when you say, Oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. Understand that none of us went just from what we talked about. None of us really have a handle on, on exactly how it's going to affect you. Nobody yeah. can, but yeah. we can help guide and direct. Yeah. And that's what these questions are for. 100%. Yeah. It is It is a murky world when it comes yeah. to uh, actually defining the characteristics of weed. And and we are we are the... Uh, the Gatekeepers. Yeah, we're the gatekeepers. gatekeepers. We're the foghorn yeah. in, the, in the storm to yeah. just let you know where things kind of are. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do want to just add this too. Know that as we go forward in this market, that things are going to be produced... For just like 
corn or alfalfa? What's our highest yield? What's our biggest producers? Mm-hmm. What gives us the reddest tomato? What gives us the biggest cucumber? Totally. These are the things, the way the market is going to go, because that is how capitalism and markets work. Totally. Okay. So moving so, right along. Yeah. Yeah. So next we're going into CBD, which we talked a little bit about earlier. Um but CBD is regular, regularly touted as the cure-all regarding yeah. the cannabis plant. It is, it is the one-stop shop for all your ailments. Yeah. And there are regular ads nowadays for CBD supplements to help with various mental and physical ailments um, that they probably might or might not be, they probably shouldn't be advertising it that way. <laughs> Right. The bottom line is that while there are some studies that back up these claims, there are just as many studies that show little correlation between CBD usage and some of the touted benefits. Yes. Here's what we know for sure, though. Yeah. CBD most wide is uh, its most widely effective use in, uh, is for seizure disorders, which is huge. Mm-hmm. They've also there have also been studies to suggest it may help with insomnia, inflammation, and anxiety, but nowhere near a hundred percent efficacy. So mm-hmm. that mean meaning, while it helps some people with yeah. insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, yeah. it's not going to help every single person with no. that. No, um, no, nor can anything do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means it can help some people, but many won't receive the same benefits from CBD usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, as discussed earlier, it doesn't reduce the negative effect when used with or after, after. THC. Only taking a significant dose prior to THC usage will it have any effect in reducing THC absorption. So if you're of, of the wherewithal that, okay, well, I might smoke some weed earlier, I should take some CBD now... Maybe just don't smoke as much THC when you get to that point. I mean, if if, if you're having the if you have the ability to think bef- like hours beforehand and playing this out, it's like yeah, just take a couple less hits. Maybe <laughs> that would be my suggestion. But to each their own. That's right. And I just wanted to add something about the CBD uh, thing about how it works for some people and doesn't for others. Cortisol, for example, mm-hmm. people use cortisol for pain and joint inflammation and things like that. And they're injected in, in you, into your knee or elbow or whatever. And you can only have it so often. It didn't work for my mom. Yeah. So cortisol, just like cannabis or CBD, works for some people, doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Just like anything else there on the market. Yeah. Uh, and just like Nick was saying, you know, maybe smoke uh, less uh, THC because you better take it beforehand. Take that CBD beforehand it, it, uh, before you smoke the THC if you want that effect. Because, yep, just like we said, it's a hall room monitor. OK, mm-hmm. you know, you all know we moved along the halls in more orderly fashion and got to our appropriate classrooms on time when the hall room monitors were in place before the bell went off as opposed to the hallroom monitors coming into the hallway to control the student body after the bell. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So that's just a way easy way to explain it. And so you can wrap your head around it. Yeah. It's easier to form a, you know, form a line yeah. than, than turn a crowd into a line. Well, yes, you know? absolutely. Now CBD and THC are the most widely studied cannabinoids and there's still a lot we don't know about how they interact with our brains and our bodies. Minor cannabinoids like CBN, CBG, and CBC are gaining popularity in the cannabis health world, but even fewer studies have been conducted on them. 
We're not saying be afraid or avoid them, but the next time you see an ad uh, or an article claiming to have a new miracle cannabinoid, take it with a grain of salt. Just like everything else, we still have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. For example, we just figured out how plants even produce cannabinoids. Hold on. Yeah, they they just they just figured out just, the actual mechanism of right. how cannabinoids are produced in the weed plant. Right. Um, we already know the basic processes that can be used to produce some cannabinoids, as this is how, like the biotech companies mm-hmm. are producing a good pr- portion of their cannabinoids. But the exact system that the plant uses to efficiently mass produce and store these cannabinoids and terpenes which in quantity can can be toxic yeah. to the plant itself, was a mystery to us in la- until last year. Last year. They just figured it out. You know, it seems like we should have been researching basic science inquiries like this three decades ago when we figured out the cannabinoid system, where these come from. But, right. you know, once again, we know nothing. nothing. Yes. Now for bigger questions, okay? This is... What interactions between cannabinoids and terpenes can we develop to improve our our and other animals' overall health and well-being? What, what will we discover there? Like for dogs and, you mm-hmm. know, for pets and horses and things. Okay. Another one. How can we improve, develop, and produce cannabinoid strains for specific traits? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's something that's huge in the market. And yeah. people ask, what can I smoke for this? Or what can I smoke for that? Totally. We are still developing and learning those things. And again, that is up for you to find because as we've stated, everybody's brain chemicals mm-hmm. are different. Okay, now, another one. How do you educate a, a market that for years has been under-researched and overproduced? That's right, people. Mm-hmm. Overproduced. We've, just like monkeys in the tree, throwing our fecal, lighting our fecal matter on fire and throwing it around, we, we've been producing these things and consuming these things and we really have no idea we just discovered the endocannabinoid system in the 1990s for god's sake yeah. so how do you educate a market right? yeah you know no it's extremely hard especially like you know we've we've seen pushes come out as things go on like the awareness of terpenes as a whole is huge compared to what it was five years ago. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we do see these slow trends, but, you know, it, it takes so much time to educate a customer base. You know, yeah. I mean, I still I get questions regularly still about why does this strain have THCA and not THC? Yeah. These kind of things, you know, it, it, it's, it always takes a long time. There are always going to be new consumers as well. Yes. So, like, I think the more important part would be creating an education system uh, and verification system for uh, a bud tender, you know, absolutely um, to have ma- have a bud tender need to take a class before they take a job uh, doing this. Because I think that's wonderful. We're interacting with, you know, we're we are selling and recommending intoxicants. You know, the, these that can affect everybody differently. So, like having somebody behind the counter that is not super well educated on a lot of these things, you know, even with how little we actually know, but not educated on what we do actually know and what the truth is, is going to set somebody up for a very bad time. Yeah. You know, so I I think that's a definite necessary precursor to educating the market is educating the people behind the counter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we suggest you throw out some of the things you think you might know and instead – 
work on educating yourself on the producer and the strains that you love by those producers. Like I, you know, like I've been touting this whole episode. For example, one grower's blue dream might make you sing while another one's might make you scream. Okay. Ah! <laughs> I don't want to get off the couch. The couch is my friend. <laughs> okay. Now, there are many things we think we know, and then there are many things we don't, like we've been saying. Just like everything else in the world, the more you know, the more you know you don't know anything. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I've learned this when I uh, started keeping bees years ago. Now, we've been keeping bees, you know, for uh, for probably humans have been keeping bees for probably about over a thousand years by now. Mm-hmm. And... For example, they just figured out not too long ago the shape of which the bee um, makes the the honeycomb yeah. the hexagon shape, and the way that they do that, it actually has something to do with the magnetic fucking field of the Earth. Yeah. Okay. And how they discovered that they put a beehive between two giant magnets, so it took away the magnetic, magnetic field yeah. of the Earth. And the cat and the whole thing went cattywampus. It looked like some Dolly Salvador Dolly painting. It's so, so wild. Just so you know, we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, five hundred million years, people. She got it that time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Cannabis Nation. We hope this has helped shed light on your most burning questions and dankest desires. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cannabis Nation Podcast. This is Susan. And I'm Nick. And the Nana Note. 500 million years. What do you know?